do you want a list? <laughs> Hello, everyone. I am that Weaves guy uh, here for another episode, and I actually hit the record button as something was being said that, that might not have made it to uh, the video or the audio. So if that's there, I don't know how to edit it out, and I'm not going to try to. But uh, we're recording this uh, Saturday night, January the 7th, right about 9 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, here with me tonight are John Hearn and Eric Gellhouse. John, introduce yourself. Say hello. Hey, John Hearn. Uh, long time, I guess, that Weems Guy podcast appearance. Uh, long first officer for about 30 years now. I have my own training gig, long time range master staff instructor, and just general all around uh, gun trivia and nerd guy. All right, Eric. Hi, everyone. Saturday night. Uh, let's see. Eric, retired law enforcement, did 29 years, former military, uh, adjunct instructor at Gunsight, uh, general nerd on the science side of these, in the history side of these things, uh, occasional writer for AmericanCop.com. All righty. Um, I should also note a milestone this week. I did not celebrate it. I just took note of the anniversary. Uh Tuesday was the 24th anniversary of my academy class convening. So I've been doing this for 24 years now. I'm old. I've been doing it longer than some of our employees have been alive. New guy. Uh, yeah. Some of, yeah. So, but it's uh, next year I may do something to celebrate 25, but I haven't done anything to celebrate any of the others. So I guess maybe not that one. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, Colonel Cooper's combat triad. And I want to discuss first what kind of led up to this episode, because the combat triad is one of those things that most people who have been around the training world for a while are familiar with, and they know that it comes from Colonel Cooper. Well, I had a project in mind that would involve some discussion of the combat triad, and so I wanted to find where it was in Colonel Cooper's writing so I could properly cite that. And I did some online searches and couldn't find it. I asked several, um, you know, longtime gun site people such as Sangosa and everything. Hey, what book did Colonel Cooper publish the combat triad in? And no one could give me the correct answer of where it was. Well, they gave me a correct answer. They just couldn't tell me where it was. And uh, so I contacted several other people. I contacted Dave Spalding. I contacted Ken Hackathorn. I contacted Jay Hohenhouse. Uh, Jay also referred me to a gentleman uh, named Craig Smith. And as it turns out, it does not appear that Colonel Cooper ever actually published the combat triad in an in-book form. Now, uh, Mr. Morrison's book is based around the combat triad, and we're going to get into that. Uh, Eric's holding that up now, right now. Um, we're going to get into Mr. Morrison's book and the actual combat triad shortly, but it's just it's just interesting that it's just, everyone knows about it, but it's not in print form. And uh, now we're going to go to Eric, and Eric's going to kind of give us an overview of the combat triad. So just to kind of add to what Lee has said, there's the gunsight gossip, which preceded kind of Rich G and Jeff Cooper having their falling out at gunsight, and then there's the Cooper commentaries that come after that. Uh, the commentaries are all available in PDF form. And this afternoon, I ran through about 12 years of them on searches. And I found one mention of the triad. One, and it was discussing caliber and stopping power, not the origins of it or where it came from. So what Colonel Cooper kind of put together, 
not kind of put together, did put together was the triad. And it's consists of mindset, marksmanship and gun handling. And when it's depicted as a triangle, mindset is always the foundation part. It is, it is the bottom. It is the underpinning. Uh, the other two will rise from there. So mindset is all the thinking side of it. The way Morrison describes it is it's not only the mental willingness to do what needs to be done, but it's the safety principles, the training psychology. And he puts the tactics there under mindset, which is interesting because it's not where it comes up later on. He then talks about the marksmanship side of it, which is aligning sites, pressing the trigger, like we were kind of discussing in the pre-show. Mm -hmm. And then gun handling is everything else. Malfunction clearance is reloading, positional work, right? Whole presentation work. Um, so those are the three. It's where I've seen kind of the most discussion on it is in Modern Technique of the Pistol Morrison's book that he wrote in the late 80s that was published in 91 in that it's kind of four sections in the book and the first three are the combat triad explained. And then it can, those sections consist of chapters that support that subject area. Okay. John, you got anything to throw in here? I was going to throw in there. Um, I think I thrown out a text message to some people that I, I know and respect uh, that I would have sworn that I read somewhere that Cooper had stated that the triad had arisen out of his analysis of failures and gunfights. And I was trying to track down a source for that. And I, I ran into the same roadblocks that you did in that, um, you know, I, I can't find, for lack of a better word, a citable source that uh, ties into that idea. So uh, either Jeff said it and I'm missing it, or maybe I've just had a uh, small stroke of genius. It might be my my one for the 21st century, let's say. What's interesting about it is mindset as the whole, as the component, right? In the Gunsight 250 class, at least, is addressed as a standalone block. It, it's, it was originally Wednesday afternoon. Now it's Wednesday morning. The way it was, you know, Cooper gave the lecture. Now the way it's done at the school is there's a video of one of Cooper's lectures, and then there's follow on discussion and presentation from the range master in the class. Where it gets covered, though, is the combat triad doesn't get covered as part of that. The combat triad gets brought up on Monday morning in kind of the introductory discussion with the components and kind of the, the direction that mindset's going to get addressed by an, in and of itself later in the week, which is the Wednesday morning presentation. And then you'll work on the marksmanship and the gun handling throughout the rest of the week. And that could be why we don't have we're not finding like a definitive discussion on it somewhere. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, the project that I had in mind was, you know, the obsession with speed that that so permeates the shooting world now, or at least the training world and everything. And what I was going to try to relate it to is that you could look at each of those three legs of the combat triad, and you could equate those to speed because all right let's look at marksmanship okay missing costs time so if you're accurate with your shots you're you're faster than you are that if you're missing shots and i'm simplifying this from what mm -hmm. i would what i would put out uh an effective hit to a vital area is more likely to stop an attacker more quickly than periphery hits are 
And that's where I was going to go with a marksmanship equaling time. And then I was going to go with, you know, the manipulations or gun handling equaling time uh, because all the things, if you have a malfunction, the longer it takes you to clear that malfunction, all right, that's costing you time. Uh, while I'm not huge on the, you've got to have this sub-second draw, obviously there's a difference between a sub-second or a 125 draw and a two and a half second draw or presentation to the target. So I was going to go, go at it from that angle. And then I was going to approach the mindset from the, if you're aware and you recognize the threat before the threat is actually attacking you, that is going to be faster than you actually trying to respond uh, as you're being attacked. And that's, that's kind of where I was going to go with all of this. And I sent that in an email to Ken Hackathorn and his response was, you're partially right. We need to talk. <laughs> So I gave him a call and um, I'm not going to quote everything that he, that he said, but uh, he was like, you're, you're on track on some of the other, but if you look back at what Colonel Cooper actually said in his lectures, all right, he included tactics as the gun handling, not just the physical yeah. handling of the gun, but tactics as well. Uh, I still think that my premise holds up, but, you know, obviously tactics are going to play into speed. Or the absence of it, exactly. right? It, it, yeah. You know, Dave has talked about the deliberate nature of things. Mm -hmm. So, which kind of goes counter to the speed. He's also talked about gunfights being one in seconds, not tens of seconds. Which, when I hear that, gets me down the go, takes me down the left of Bang Road. Right? Uh -huh. Is Dave talking about the seconds that precede the go signal? taking away the need to work intensive seconds after it. Mm -hmm. I do find it interesting though, that, that Ken brought up the tactics being part of gun handling, where I think most of us, most of us put it, or most of us think of it as, whereas I've got Morrison back in the historical era saying, no, it's, it's part of mindset, which to me is kind of fascinating. And I had missed that before. I just caught that when I was going through the sheets. Yeah. I've got a copy of Morrison's book. It is hiding very successfully from me at the moment and uh, this it was obviously it's not on kindle and so all of my notes are highlights in the book or and stuff handwritten in margins and stuff and um, i can't find the book to find my notes so uh, that's one of the really things i love about kindle now is that i can highlight and make notes there in a book while i'm reading and i can pull it up from any device that i can get on kindle um i wonder what the difference is there is that something that uh you know, why, I guess you could say that tactics fit in both places. They I think do. you make that argument. Um, I was going back through, uh, I've been on this marathon drive across the uh, entire eastern half of the country, and I was trying to catch up on a bunch of YouTube videos. And we do have some recorded lectures from Jeff, and I think it's one of these situations where he thought it was so obvious that it didn't require a lot of enunciation and detailed explanation. But one of the things that when you watch his lectures is that it seems to me that one of the core aspects of mindset is just that of acceptance. You know, he talked repeatedly about how his, the students that have won fights didn't win it because they were exceptional marksmen, but because of the way that they thought. And I think the cornerstone to the way that those people were thinking was simply an acceptance that bad things can happen. I think that part of the problem is, is that most people wander through the world 
without an acknowledgement of why they might be carrying the gun or any other self-defense tool. So just having an honest conversation with yourself that there are evil people in the world, bad things do happen to good people, and being willing to accept that puts you so far down the road. Um, these are you know fairly simple statements, but I think they're 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 lost by a lot of people. Um, and you no know, arguably part of the reason I think tactics fit into mindset is that if you accept that evil exists, you're going to naturally maneuver yourself to a position advantage as you go through your daily life. You know, we're not talking about, you know, large military engagements. We're talking about fairly short duration, high intensity personal conflict, where simply being closer to a piece of cover than your adversary can have a huge difference. So I think we're in this bizarre situation where, you know, the man that told us that if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen, actually failed to write down in great detail some really, really important points. Yeah, that's what's that's kind of baffling to me, you know, because again, as we said in the intro, the triad is, everybody knows if you say combat triad, it goes back to Jeff Cooper, but it's not published anywhere. But everything else he's thinking of was, was published. Uh, Eric, you had a thought just in, a second In excruciating ago. detail. Uh, now I can't remember what it was. Talking about day. mindset being uh, mindset being under, uh, or excuse me, tactics being under mindset. No, I, I think John's, John's explanation of that, his his positioning on that makes perfect sense um, in light of the, if you, the acceptance of bad things happening of evil in the world that you just, you reprogram how you go through life. Um, I know the putting it over in the gun handling part of it made sense to me because that's where we're doing everything else, drawing the gun, manipulating the gun, loading the gun, reloading the gun, clearing stoppages that made sense over there. Um, I, I think it fits in, it, it doesn't fit in marksmanship, but it fits in, the tactics fits in either of the other two places. Um, Cooper did, by laying it out the way he did simplistically, it makes sense, right? And like you're saying about, we can't find it, it's probably because it made so much sense to everyone that we didn't have to. Um, hmm. you know to go to to john's point of mindset being you're switched on by recognizing that there is evil in the world um you know i think that's the hallmark of the range master doctrine and success is you know I, tom Givens has obviously shaped my my thought processes in this whole subject area more than anyone else but I don't run a gun like Tom does. But the one thing that permeates through all of us that come out of the range master teaching, which comes out of the gun site, mm -hmm. or actually American Pistol Institute teachings, is the mindset portion of the whole thing. And to go back to, you know, to the conversation I had with Mr. Hackerlund this week, he's like, everybody just accepts marksmanship as a given. And then they all, everyone wants to go focus on mindset that the gun handling and tactics is kind of the thing that has faded out of the training world. Yes. And I may not be quoting him exactly accurate, just paraphrasing what, what we discussed. Eric, you have any thoughts I, on that? Or John, since you... I'm just going to throw it out there because when you do delve into this thing, the only thing that you really, really see as far as much detail on the mindset side of the thing 
is everybody automatically flows over to the Cooper color codes. There's a uh, fascinating, I think it's a far side cartoon where there's a, a mathematician on a chalkboard with this extensive equation. And right in the middle, it says, and then the magic happens, right? And one of the guys in the audience <laughs> is like, can you explain that middle part? And I think that's kind of where we are. I think that Cooper recognized, um, because he has studied this for so many years, that this stuff was just, uh, for lack of better words, obvious on its face. You know, it's in the plain text of the document. But as we've seen with like the, you know, some of the decisions of the Second Amendment, you know, even the plain text of the document seems to occasionally get missed by people. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the whole, I guess to try to follow this up, is, you know, the whole purpose of the color codes is to help you with the acceptance that evil exists in the world and how to most effectively identify it. But, um, you know, one of the things that I found interesting was I, I was, you know, digging through my own thoughts, for lack of a better word. And, um, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about Jeff was he was able to intuit stuff that we now can better explain through science. And I think that basically what he was basically arguing was toward this idea of a mental map. Um, you know, I, I, I've talked about a lot about this and some of my, uh, the stuff that I do and stuff like that. But Cooper automatically assumes that the reader under, has a mental map that matches up with his, and we can proceed kind of in, in lockstep from there. But I think that that foundational mental map is an important part of what we're missing in this whole process and what we're trying to find, I guess, in this discussion. Fascinating, because I'm thinking back to the design of the shoot houses, both the original funhouse and playhouses. I went through them in the mid-90s. And there was a fair amount of removing novelty in them. There were things in there set up to like, to expose you to stuff, expose you to events, to circumstances in ways that, that weren't in other places at the time, especially not for folks who couldn't get to large governmental facilities. So you're onto something there, or you're more than onto something there, but. John, could you take a moment to talk about novel stimulus and what that does in the mental process? John's experiencing novel stimulus right this second. So, so in a nutshell, a novel stimulus is something for which you have no previous frame of reference and you don't have any um, way to interpret. And that's one of the key signals that forces the mind into a much more emotional reaction in which necessarily in the gunfighting example, all those skills that you've been developed may not be as accessible because you're you're struggling with that. Um, going back to Eric's points about novelty in the shoot house, um, you know, I think we take for granted in 2023 that everything that we know today uh, was previously known. And, you know, I think about going to the fun house, for lack of better words, and, you know, early in Gunsight, they were pushing out, for lack of better words, I apologize, those cartoonish, threat targets. I think they were made in Belgium for some reason yeah. that's anchoring in my mind that where they came from. But when you compare that to a world in which everybody shot B-27s, that really was a novel stimulus in which you had uh, a fairly accurate visual representation of a living, breathing adversary engaged in violence towards you. That took you a long way down the road from a B-27. Now we have much better stuff today. But again, when you think of, you know, gunsight being found at circa 76 um it, it's again amazing how much jeff was able to intuit what you would actually need to survive in the real world um the the sad you know, i don't know if it's a sad fact but the simple fact remains is that the 
technical shooting problems encountered by the majority of people in this world are not that hard. It's just a matter of getting your head around the idea that, oh yeah, those skills I've been developing, I need to apply them now, like right now, you know? Um, And if you can just get somebody over that hurdle, you've gotten them a long, long way down the road they need to travel. Yeah, that goes back to a story that, that Tom told me one time, and he tells it in some of the classes about using photorealistic targets at some point in time during your training so that people actually see, you know, what it's like to have a human on the other end of this this perspective. And in one class where he switched from shooting standard silhouette targets and put up photorealistic targets, had a student said, I, I, can't, I can't shoot that target. It looks like a real person. Like when you're here in a class learning how to defend yourself, you're not going to be attacked by a faceless silhouette. You're going to be attacked by a person with a face wearing clothes. Well, most likely wearing clothes. Yeah, et cetera. Um, hopefully wearing clothes. Hopefully wearing, hopefully you're not going to get attacked. Because uh, I got to, you know, we'll throw this one out for three uh, guys with uh, each over two decades of law enforcement. Any incident involving a naked guy in a fight never goes, never turns out no. well. We wait don't rush wait. to that call. Yeah. Wait, wait till you add a naked female into that mix. Yeah. That, that's a whole different problem than a naked guy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that Eric, I think, just goes back to your thing about where the shoot houses were to remove the stimulus or the novel stimulus. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. You know, we do all the stuff. We can do all the technical shooting in the world that we want to. But until the brain gets wired to accept that I may have to actually apply this against a live human adversary that is trying to end my life or someone I love's life. Okay, that's a mental switch you got to be able to flip. And there's got to be something in training that allows someone to, to have that roadmap to go there. I'll throw it back to you guys for comments on Yeah, you know, Tom has done the bit where he gives the students permission to use deadly force to defend mm-hmm. themselves, right? Um, looking at the videos of Cooper doing the, the, doing the mindset lectures, especially the one that the school uses now, he's taking the students down that road, right? That mm-hmm. they, that their life has value, that their life matters, that they have the responsibility for preserving that. And here are various events. That works towards that too. That that tees up the mental side in terms of, yes, I can go do this. If I have to, if it comes to me, I can do this. I'm allowed to. I think that's, you know, uh, reviewing the lectures as I was going down the road, you know, one of the things that I found interesting was what was repeatedly mentioned. And I think that it's probably telling that Jeff repeatedly distinguished between problem one and problem two. And we tend to be utterly focused on problem two, which is the aftermath of the shooting. I think Jeff's point was, is that before we can get to problem number two, you have to worry about problem number one. Mm-hmm. And problem number one is best solved by an absolute religious devotion to your front sight and a smooth trigger press. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, we'll worry about problem two down the road, but before we can get there, yeah, got to get there, you know, you got to get to problem two by solving problem one successfully. And just by emphasizing that, you know, problem one is, uh, 
you need to be in a middle state such that problem one is reduced to nothing but sights and trigger, I think is also telling as far as his awareness, his deep understanding of what was necessary to solve real world problems. Yes, the, the only thing I, I would offer as, as a change is that it's, it, you, I think you use the term religious devotion. Uh, it's a religious devotion to using your sighting system effectively. And that is such a small change. It's not funny, but with the changes in sighting systems, that's the only reason I would offer that. Well, when, when he wrote the words, worship your front sight, there wasn't yes. an option, another I, alternative I, available. I understand, but like now we've got folks who are who are discussing and well, they're beyond discussing. They're teaching and almost preaching soft focus on the sites. We've got pistol mounted optics that have a, a different visual, different type of visual attention. So I would just go with the sighting system that you choose to use. But I'm, and, that's and I would also so far point out that from, yeah, from my, my recall of the, the shoot house problems, is that there was always a hostage shot in there somewhere. And I think that the hostage shot is important because it really does anchor you in the importance of the focus on the sighting system and that you can solve a lot of problems with soft sight focus. But if you're, you know, if I'm me, if I'm the one who has been taken hostage, I would appreciate a, a, a slavish devotion to your <laughs> sighting system in that particular instance. Yes. Uh, I, I'm actually going to ask that they not only have that devotion to the sighting system, that they also know to press the trigger with one finger instead of all of them. <laughs> I apologize for going in the weeds. <laughs> no, I just, you, you can see the sights and be, be locked in on the sights all you want to, but the other part of that is pressing the trigger to the rear without moving the gun. Yeah. Um, to be fair, if somebody's listening to this podcast, they're probably in the weeds with us, or at least interested <laughs> in what's in the weeds. <laughs> if they're not, this is not a podcast that appeals to normal people. <laughs> right. We're not. We're, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I was going to say we're not. We're not Joe Rogan. Yeah, uh, this podcast is specifically designed not to appeal to to, to the masses. Um, I like staying in this in the deep end of the pool where we typically stay. I know it doesn't lead to great numbers but uh it leads to the right people that we want to talk to and, and about and with but uh you know what, what got me started down this this road and looking at it is i've been working with the jailer that uh he started the academy this week and been working with him on firearms and i took him to the range wednesday of last week so he because he wanted to run the call course and some stuff before starting the academy this week and there were a couple of instances where his hits on the target were good but he was over time and i sketched out on the you know on the the target my understanding of the combat triad and was saying hey look you know your marksmanship's here but your gun handling is not because you're late on this course on this course of fire because your reload took too long because you bobbled the reload and that cost you time. And we're trying to put it into the thing that the whole equation, all three of those work together into doing that. And I was really wanting to attach it to the training tool. And, you know, on one end, the importance of speed, but on the other end, doing everything together will actually solve the speed problem. I think it goes back to, uh, and I think this is might be one of our frustrations with the current training environment, 
is that these are co-equal parts. And the idea that these are co-equal parts seems to be lost on a lot of people. You know, there's this slot, you know, the slavish dedication to quite frankly, what is ultimately manipulation. I mean, uh, let's start some controversy. I mean, the one second draw stroke is effectively um, the, the utter worship of the manipulation side of the house. And the way that we get down to a one second draw stroke is that we give us a big enough target that the marksmanship is less of a concern, right? So I, I think that's part of what we're you know experiencing here is the recognition that these are co-equal parts and you've got to have all three in a balance that is appropriate to solve the problem that you're facing. And there are definitely folks out there that can do the one second draw, sub one second draw and get the hits. Some of those folks are coming out of organizations and places, not all of them, but some of them are coming out of places where they have, were specially selected to go there because their processor speed and other abilities were off were off the charts in comparison to, I'll, I'll say mere mortals, but I don't necessarily mean it that way. Yeah. Right. But are they understanding that there is some difference between them, right? Um, so I go back to high school and I, I tell the, you know, people ask me like, oh, did you play football in high school? Uh, I was on the team. <laughs> like my playing, my, like my playing time did make double digits my senior year minute wise. Right. But that's out of a 10 game season. Right. I made it into double digits, like right at the end of the year, I didn't play ball. I, you know, there's guys there who actually had the physical ability to do all of that stuff. Right. I, I was better served as a tackle, the tackling dummy. So yeah, I, I practiced football. I don't yes. know that I ever played it. <laughs> yes. I, I think the exact explanation was I played end guard and tackle. I sat on the end of the bench. I mm. guarded the water cooler and I tackled anybody who tried to take it. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too much on, from my end on the one second draw thing because I, quite frankly, I've beaten that, that topic up. But what I think is, is the, people focus on that metric and they lose sight of everything else other than that metric. And so I'm going to make a whole other different group of people mad, although it's probably this, the same group of people. All right. Compensators on carry pistols. And I'm going to tie it specifically to one, a very popular carry pistol that's out there right now. And that is the SIG 365 family. You know, the macro came out uh, late last year and everybody got really well you know a lot certain segment of the game world got really excited about it and i'm sitting there looking at it well they ruined it by putting that stupid velocity reducer at the end of the barrel they gave up a half of inch of their effective barrel length to put that compensator in it and it's also that the gun shoots slightly flatter to give faster split feeds well, I waited until the 365 carry was available on the law enforcement side, uh, which is basically the macro, but without the velocity reducer. It's not a comp. It just slows your bullet down. That's what it does. All right. People you know, that want those comps and those guns, and, I, and I'm talking about the subcompacts yeah. that have it as part of the barrel, not a race gun that you've hung off the end of the barrel. All right. They're more worried about the flip of the muzzle and how fast they can get the next shot off than they are the performance of the bullet that is hitting the attacker downrange. Mm -hmm. 
because they're separating. They're saying, well, I get this faster split speed. I get holes in the target faster, but that is separating. What are we training to do? Why are we doing this? We're out practicing these skills to defend ourselves or protect ourselves and our loved ones. I want that bullet to be as effective as it can be when it strikes the target. So one, it more effectively neutralizes them. And number two, I don't have to fire as many of them. Number three, it stops him from or her from hurting me more quickly, which is fast and speed and goes to everything else. You know, at some point in time, you get below the threshold that a nine millimeter bullet will expand. Unfortunately, I we can measure splits. Mm-hmm. Right, we can we can measure the speed at which that stuff's done, and and we can document it, right, in various imagery, right. Still, mm-hmm. not so much still photos, but definitely on video. Yeah, that plays into the current social media culture. The unfortunate part is mindset, awareness, paying attention to one's surroundings not putting yourself in a bad situation, realizing, you know, I just don't really need to be waiting here at this ATM. I'll go somewhere else. That's a whole lot harder to document. Um, And is that the issue? I don't know. I think it goes back to what, what is the purpose of the tool though? If that tool is to um, use deadly force to stop an immediate threat to myself or another, that is a specific use. If the tool is nothing but a overglorified chemical paper puncher, that is a completely different approach. And I think that the obsession with comps, and for the love of God, we're talking Jeff Cooper. Okay, if Jeff Cooper is twirling in his grave over anything, it's just the, the, the need in 2023 to have a compensator on a nine millimeter pistol, for the love of God. You know, um, Jeff Cooper was perfectly able to generate incredible splits with a 45 firing full power ammo. The idea that you would need a compensator on a nine millimeter pistol um, is, is, uh, dare I say, obscene in the the course of this discussion that we're having. But again, I think it goes back to the context and the mindset. Um, If I'm shooting a living human breathing who's a threat to me, I want the bead. I want that bullet to be as efficient as possible to have the highest probability of stopping that threat. On the other hand, if I need a really cool video for the grams, then all of a sudden, whether that compensator reduces the efficacy of the bullet is a completely moot point. It's it's a plus at that point. So again, it comes back, I think, to, you know, as Eric um, said, the mindset is the foundation. You know, what are you carrying this thing for? Um, I'm carrying it because somebody might try to hurt me or someone I love. And it's the only option that I have to solve that problem, as opposed to having something that makes me look really cool on social media. And uh, again, it goes back to, you know, I think some of the suggestions we've had is that, you know, you probably shouldn't judge your uh, your, your instructor by the number of followers they have uh, when it comes to picking somebody to train with. Yeah, and it's, and again, folks, we're making a distinction here between a tool that you're carrying for protection versus one that you're running around trying to win trophies with. Oh, that, that's two separate categories. Uh, now, I'm not saying that you can't train with your carry gun, et cetera, et cetera. You actually should be doing that. But I understand the difference between the only reason to own a gun is not self-defense. There's lots of fun things that you can do with firearms that don't involve uh, the application side of things. But I do tend to see 
more operating problems with guns that have compensators and stuff added to them, pistols that have stuff, than I do that don't have them on there. Um, just, just two things on that. One, I did try to add a compensator onto a Glock 19, which is probably hands down the most reliable pistol ever made. And all I did with that compensator. Although that's going to come up again. Oh, that is going to haunt you. I, 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 no, but let me finish, right? Because I'm not a Glock fan, which is why I put the compensator on the Glock. Um, and I was still working. So this was several years ago. Um, all it did was turn, turn the thing into a malfunction extravaganza. Mm -hmm. I, I could not get that gun to run reliably. And that was with a KKM barrel and cop. Um, second, the bit about what are we doing versus how does it look like? And then I'll just plug a hashtag here because I'm still trying to figure out how that whole thing works. Graham, not Graham. Graham is in objective reasonableness, not Graham is in the Instagram, right? So just kind of something to think about there, right? Like what works, what matters versus how does it look? Yeah. Uh, why would I bolt something onto my defensive tool that I know is going to make it less reliable? Now, I know there's people out there that are screaming at their YouTube or their podcast view, not my gun. It runs perfectly fine when I have this perfect formulated ammunition that has been tuned to the gun to make it do that or whatever. And, and, and folks, if, if you're putting that comp on your pistols and going out there and it's being 100% reliable. You don't have to satisfy me. You got to satisfy you. Um, but I'm just looking at the, the whole mindset portion of this. What is most important? Well, I would also, you know, one of the passing thoughts I'll throw out there is that I think SIG has done a very good job of making those devices very, very reliable. The way they have done that is by reducing their value as a compensator. A compensator was effectively a jet nozzle that directed the blast up. What SIG has effectively done is put a big expansion chamber on the end of the gun, and you can see very mixed reviews online as to whether that particular design has the benefits that everybody thinks it has. You know, But that's what you have to do to make sure the guns are 100% reliable, is it's just an expansion chamber. It's no longer a, uh, a jet nozzle to direct the gases in a particular direction. Yeah, but when every discussion you see of it, people talk about it makes the gun shoot flatter. Okay, yeah, maybe it does. That may be the difference between uh, a 0.35 split and a 0.29 split. It may be. But in the real world application of that, that's not a big deal. It only matters with the timer. And uh, what, what was the Cooper saying about... Uh, Chasing Pre incidental Pre increments. Preoccupation with insignificant with increments. I was going to say inconsequential, but yes, we're, we're, we're right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do have a question. Sure. Does that 0 0.29 to 0 0.35 change your processing speed? Can, can you, are you able to process the thing any better in that six one hundredths of a second? If you can, great. If you can't, maybe it's not for you. And John Chapman uh, from, well, originally LMS Defense and now Forge Tactical. John was the first guy I heard use the phrase processor speed, mm -hmm. right? As to how like the human brain works and stuff. And I was talking with John about that. And it's recently, because I'm trying to wrap my head around some stuff that we're doing and we'll talk about later. But 
John's like, your processor speed's more or less set. And for everybody, it declines over time. There's things you can do to improve it, right? Not your processor speed, but getting the information to the processor. You can, uh-huh. you can speed up and improve that part of it. And maybe that's where the time needs to be better spent. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I've touched on this before, but I, I reiterated it to myself in a recent class. When I have made pre-decisions on how, that I'm going to draw the gun and how many shots I'm going to fire on the square range against non-moving paper targets, I can give you the sub-30 splits. I, I shot numerous drills in a recent SIG pistol-mounted optics instructor course, which yeah, I, I know Lee hates red dots. Um, class yeah. where they were they were measuring every shot in the drill. I was um, like shooting build drills at 0.28, 0.29 splits repeatedly but i knew when i drew the pistol that i was going to fire six shots mm-hmm. i can't process information to that speed now if you're some super duper master ninja level shooter and you can process information that quickly good for you um more power to you i'm envious in a positive way not negatively if i start getting faster than 0.4 i'm really starting to outrun what this or i can start to make shots excuse me decisions for individual shots and you know to me that's important from a defensive standpoint or an application standpoint i need to be able to make decisions for each shot so that i'm not launching rounds in outer space now i'm not saying it's going to guarantee that i don't launch rounds in outer space but uh i think we need to stay within ourselves eric you were going to say something I so going down the same lines, I took a Frank Proctor class recently. And Frank's former Army SF guy, uh, USPSA GM. I know he shot IDPA, but I don't know. I can't remember where he was ranked there. But one of the things that Frank had said was he was not a fan of the build drill, didn't like practicing it, didn't like doing it. He believed in firing single shots. Now, he could fire multiple single shots, but it was a single shot and a single shot and a single shot process based on what he needed to see at the time or done at a speed based on what he needed to see at the time which which i thought was kind of fascinating yeah. and we had a, we had a sidebar discussion about linked pairs versus linked single shots and he hadn't thought about the concept of linked pairs but it was just it was an interesting discussion from a competitor who's shooting quickly yeah if he's a grandmaster in USPSA, he's a master in IDPA. I, yeah, I don't have it. going to be. Uh, I, I've taken um, two classes from Frank. Uh, he taught a block of the FBI firearms instructor class that I attended. And then he also took a one day private class from him. And uh, huge on processing information as you're shooting. Yep. And, uh, you know, of course, he's special forces and grandmaster so he's link he's tying those two worlds together of application and and technical but you know, he's focusing on the processing information and you know one of the drills he had us do in the class that, that took from him was he had barrels set up and he basically were doing a snake drill through the barrels and there were index cards on top of each barrel with numbers on them and then there were still targets downrange with numbers painted on the steel targets and as you went past each barrel you saw the number that was stapled on the top of you had to find that target 
and shoot that target that many times. It was basically like a moving casino drill. But it was all about you had to process the information while you were executing the technical skill. And I, you know, I just thought, you know, I, uh, I ran the first version of the two-day version of Cognitive Pistol, and one of the things that we did in that class was focus on stop shooting, and it was a very different experience in a shooting class where you'd see people, you know, they might deliver shots at a incredibly fast speed, but the look on their face when they realized that the last shot or second shot that they fired was well past the the justification they had for the use of deadly force. They had a very, very different perspective on this. It was much more of a kind of a you know expression on their face as they were going, oh yeah, I, that might not fly in the real world. And that's how the real world works is that, you know, if you look back uh, to, to Legally Nerd out here, those classic descriptions of the, the circumstances in which lethal force decisions are made, tense, rapidly evolving, that sort of a thing. Um, you had to make a lot of decisions with a little bit of information under very compressed timeframes and running the gun as fast as physically possible may not be the best solution for making those sound decisions. All right. Eric, you got anything else on that before we jump into the analysis tool? Not on, not on that now. John, anything else on that before we go to analysis? No, I don't think so. All right. Uh, in this whole email and text chain that was going around this week of, of, of looking for the information, uh, and as John said earlier, uh, he brought up the notion of using the combat triad as an analysis tool uh, to analyze use of force incidents. And I did raise that in the conversation with Mr. Hackathorn. John, he did believe you were onto something uh, with that. Uh, so, John, I'm going to toss it to you to explain what you mean here. I just, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to historic gunfights. I spent a lot of time looking at events and a particular focus on, say, New Hall in Miami and some other significant events in law enforcement. And there are very few failures in historic gunfights that are not captured by those three categories. Um, you know, uh, thinking about New Hall, for instance, um, there were numerous examples of the mismanipulation of the weapons from, you know, one of the officers um, mismanipulating a shotgun and allowing an unfired piece of double lock buck to be found on the parking lot there. Um, an officer attempting to get all six rounds into his revolver as the bad guy was closing on him, instead of just, say, getting two rounds into the gun and firing those two rounds at the bad guy. Um, you know, it works as a great analysis tool. Outside of a catastrophic failure of your weapon, there's very little that is not captured by that. When I say, you know, catastrophic failure, um, you know, I was shooting a match once and my gun failed to fire, so I tapped it and I racked it. And at that point, the gun disassembled itself. And I'm sitting there staring at the frame of my 220, looking at the top round ready to feed out because the takedown lever had failed and the slot had launched downrange. Outside of a <laughs> catastrophic failure like that, almost everything can be captured into one of those three, one of those three categories. Um, we just, I think that, how do I say this? Um, we really struggle with relevant metrics, uh, especially in the law enforcement world for both marksmanship and manipulation. Um, you know, in my mind, how fast you can present your pistol is a, uh, a direct result of your manipulation skills. 
um, how small of a target, how large of a target you can hit in the time frame is a measurement of your marksmanship skills. And unless those manipulation times, those manipulation abilities, those marksmanship abilities are tied to a, a relevant standard, you really aren't doing yourself much service. And you know, almost every catastrophic loss on the law enforcement side of the house can you know be firmly rooted in one of those three categories of you know marksmanship manipulation slash gun handling um or mindset you know that that was my quick take on that yeah i'm gonna jump back to the one second draw thing for just one second with that what you just said in mind i fully recognize that the appendix carry position or, or midline carry position is faster than strong side hip especially with with concealment in mind your arms move less distance obviously it's going to be faster but for 24 years now my gun has been strong side hip and if i go out and i put the gun in an appendix i go out and i shoot a few drills well yeah i got you know a tenth or uh, 0.15 off of my draw speed so i'm going to carry that gun here in appendix well, I lose that as if I get if I get presented with uh, an attack and my hand goes to strong side and then I get all flustered and have to then realize my gun's not there. Now, I understand as I say that, that does not apply to someone that exclusively carries an appendix position. That's where they've trained. That's where in their mind, the gun's going to be. I just know that for me, I, I expect the pistol to be strong side hip and because I still work and law enforcement still you know, carrying the gun in uniform, duty gear, I can't move full-time to appendix. So I know that if I go out on the range when somebody breaks out the timer, I'm handicapping myself against someone that's shooting in appendix, where I have to remain true to myself and be intellectually honest with myself is I need the gun to be where it needs to be. I don't need to worship that timer and give pride to that, you know, that whole mindset of the, the thing. It's interesting to use the analogy of, of appendix carry versus duty gear. When I came on on the job at my department, there were a, there were a lot of guys using a muzzle forward Bianchi design mm -hmm. that didn't have a thumb break over the top. It went around the body of the holster. And as those guys retired, you saw fewer and fewer of those to the point where they just disappeared kind of always stuck in my head back in my head it was interesting and about the time I retired I got a copy of Bianchi's book on holster design from the 70s started reading it and came across the stuff on that holster and as I was kind of starting to play with it there was a cop out of Canada who was actually going out and doing the research with his agency in terms of not just where on the belt the holster sat but what was the angle of the muzzle and what was the height of the holster in relation to it? And it was quite fascinating about getting the holster forward of the hips, muzzle forward, and the body of the holster slightly lowered, which was putting it very close to an appendix position for that in the extreme. But it was just kind of fascinating to see that metric. And as accessories were available and holster mounts changed, you were able to start, some of the end users were able to start moving that stuff into mm -hmm. that place with duty gear just for a little bit more commonality. Yeah, as part of all that, I, someone was looking into the history of holster designs, and one of the reasons for the muzzle rear design in duty gear was to avoid cops getting shot in the leg. Yeah. Now, interestingly, muzzle forward, worn forward of the hips will do the same thing. Yeah. 
but like us duty gear which is kind of now we're going like tangent stuff but us duty gear which is a spinoff of safari land they have gone to almost a zero cant Mm -hmm. listening because they've been listening to officers and been looking at the change in data from what safari land had done with the muzzle real world previously yeah with my safari land stuff uh the ls series and the sls Mm -hmm. series and stuff i have been switch have long since been trying to run them in a straight up zero zero cant uh the one problem you get into with the forward cant is it works great if you're standing on both feet on the range how does it work when you're sitting sitting in a car i can't tell you i don't have as much time in the car with it Mm -hmm. i can tell you it works okay in the courthouse okay so where you're seated uh yeah more kind of more often than yeah than not a cop i know that is no longer he's no longer in law enforcement um very skilled shooter uh when he went to the carrying off duty concealed an appendix he switched his duty gear setup not necessarily to an appendix draw but he did go forward at the hip and 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 changed the the rod height and everything so it more closely replicated uh an appendix so his gun his gun's basically in the same spot all the time Mm -hmm. i I think that some of that goes back to the standards you're holding yourself to you know i I doesn't work with my guys um, I would say my guys are some of the better LE shooters around the country right now because I consistently hold them to demanding standards like the Bakersfield Quality and stuff like that. And we were playing around with some year-end money and buying some different holster mounts. And I've got this one particular guy who uh, has these obscenely long arms. Like, I mean, you know, you really wonder who his father was from the standpoint of whether he walked on his knuckles kind of thing. And when he swapped from a Safari Land really, really low drop to that uh, – um the true north rig he knows like well it's only like a half inch difference but it completely changes my draw stroke well yeah because i'm holding you to standards that are probably more reasonable but that's the kind of detail that you would never miss if all you cared about was passing an agency qualification in which it allots you three seconds to safely get the pistol out of the holster so again you know by having unrealistic marksmanship standards by having unrealistic manipulation standards you're really doing yourself a great disservice and unless you're pushing those standards, you're never going to know any better. And John's use of unrealistic here isn't that it's too tight. It's that it's not tight enough, right? Too much of the profession is not holding people to tight enough time standards on some of the, or accuracy standards on yeah. some of this work. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the first stage of the Bakersfield is legit. I mean, two rounds and 1.5 at, I believe, 10 feet. That is not a standard of marksmanship, quite frankly, or accuracy that most law enforcement officers are ready to adapt. But I mean, once you tell them that's a standard we, we're going to hold you to and we're going to make you shoot it in front of your peers, all of a sudden they can start to do it. Yeah. And that 1.5 was with a thumb snap soft molded leather holster around a gun with hard to see sights on it. Uh, there is a difference gear does make a difference yes it does Um, john what else do you have on the analysis portion of it uh nothing immediately off the top like i said you know outside of some catastrophic failures you know everything kind of falls into there um just as as a quick aside i got um contacted and uh 
I was asked to give my thoughts on mindset, which I'm like, well, great. I'll give you my thoughts on mindset. Then they told me in 250 words or less. Right. And I'm like, well, that takes all the fun out of it. John, you've um, never done anything think, in 250 words or less. Well, I managed has. to pull it off in, two, in 240. But I mean, I think it comes back to that analysis tool is whether you have a valid mental map in your head. Mm-hmm. And if you look at real world fights at the demands that the real world requires of us, whether it's speed, whether it's the accuracy of a fight stopping hit, um, ultimately, whether your mindset is, is you know, anchored in reality is really what's going to tell on you when it comes down to the analysis. So again, um, I, I think that the mindset um, is the foundation of everything. You know, for instance, you know, there's been a greater emphasis these days in emergency medicine. Well, if you look at real world fights, you understand that people get hurt, whether they perform well or not. It naturally flows from a realistic mental map that we have some ability to deliver first aid to ourselves and others. So um, I think as an analysis tool at hand, it, you know, it, it holds up remarkably well. With the only thing I would add is we have those events where the bad guy gets a vote. And then there's always going to be ones where you can hit every check block working check block working through the triad and the bad guy still gets a vote and wins. That said, we can cut down on our losses. I think if we're, we're doing what, what John's talking about, I can remember bulky a few years ago, talking about doing the same thing, kind of taking the components of the combat triad and using that to dissect events. So it, it definitely has value there. Um, I'm looking at, at events that happened in my agency while I was still working there and seeing where, where we had those issues come up, where, where there was mindset, where there was marksmanship, where there was gun handling stuff um, that all could have been used in that way to, to learn from the events. All right. In the remaining time, we're going to shamelessly self-promote. Shamelessly, yes. Shamelessly, shamelessly. Uh, coming up on April 29th and 30th, I believe are the dates. I probably should look that up. Well, <laughs> the last weekend in April. I know it's that. The last weekend in April, I believe the 29th and 30th. Uh, the three of us that are on the show tonight we'll be doing a joint class called the Cognitive Conclave. And we'll be doing it at the Red Hill Range in Martin, Georgia, which is if you leave Atlanta on I-85 heading towards South Carolina, just before you get to the South Carolina line, take a left and you you get to Red Hill Range. Um, It's going to be, um, like I said, the three of us still will start off with welcome and safety brief, et cetera. And then, we each have some classroom material. We each have range sessions that we're going to run. And every student will have the opportunity to go through everything that all three of us are, are doing. Because you'll be, at some point in time, you'll all, all the students will be together. At some point in time, they'll be divided into two groups where like one group goes with Eric, another group goes with me. Eric teaches his deal, I do my deal, and then we swap the groups. And then like the next day, it may be John has them while Eric has them. And then we swap, swap the groups and then I'll come back together. Uh, but we're going to punish the students by making them go with John. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
and we also have an inclement weather plan that if it gets bad, we all have classrooms. So if we can, we have the classroom on site, we can go back in, into there and, and so the students get their money's worth. Um, but the emphasis of this event is cognitive processing with a pistol in your hand. And um, Eric, take it away. So just like you've heard folks talk about shoot house classes being learning to think through problems with a gun in your hand. This is going to be working on processing the don't shoot shoot decision making, the changes in the event, right? The changes in circumstances with a gun in your hand. Um, I'll let John and Lee talk about what they're going to hit on, but mine is, is evolving from some of the stuff I did at my department and then my ready positions and better outcomes presentation at TACON. So putting you in a situation where it's not just shoot a drill for time, though we might start out there, but then let's add in some, some complexities to it. You know, potentially there's no shoots involved. Potentially there's downrange hazards involved. You, know, you might be able to run a plate rack at X time, but now when I start throwing those other things in, how does that impact your ability to, to work through the problem, right? How, how does it change it? Not like, okay, you're a bad person, but do we see how these changes in the environment, changes in circumstance impact performance? Yeah, and, and one thing I wanna point out here to potential students is don't be afraid of coming and failing on the range. That's where you need to have those failures if you have them. I know somebody asked, like, what, what can I practice for this? Don't just show up, take the material that, that you're going to present, that John's going to present, that I'm going to present, and then apply it to the situations that we're giving you a chance to work through. John? I was going to say, uh, I think we each have different little blocks we're going to cover. Um, I want to assure the students that the targets they shoot when they're with me will have... Um, been obtained only after the most extensive cross-country marathon of driving I think ever associated since uh, Burt Reynolds and um, Jerry went across the country to bring the beer, dude. Um, we're going to, uh, my big focus is going to be on 3D target problems. And uh, I have literally driven about 25 hours to have the targets on hand in order to do that. But uh, I think it's going to be a great time. Uh, if you um, care more about your build, raw build, build drill time and maybe a more realistic application of these skills, uh, it's going to be a great time for everybody. You know, you saved yourself by going smoking the bandit because I thought you were going cannonball run. <laughs> At least it's not convoy. I mean, another, another great classic 70s movie, dude. That's right. And you're almost in, you know, smoking the bandit country. Almost. 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 Because I'm thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. We're going to do what they say can't be done. That's right. And you're a long time to go and a short time to get there. <laughs> he couldn't resist. That's right. The painful look, for those of you that hear this on audio and don't see the video, the painful look that was on Eric's face as that transpired uh, it was worth the whole night. Worth the whole night. Uh, for my portion of it, I'm actually going to take uh, a technical skill and break it down and throw some wrinkles at it and let, let the students actually test some things technically. And I don't want to give, give the punchline of, of the whole exercise away. Um, but uh, 
it may affect it may impact the way people teach some things moving forward and it may impact the way people you know do their skills later on it may reinforce what they're doing is what what they need to be doing i will also say that the magnificent steve is feverishly working away in his maniacal workshop and um, i i need to get a request to the magnificent steve something popped into my head the other day that i want to add so okay. I'll, I'll get a hold in all right uh steve loves to come up with uh uh, he he has scolded me for referring to them as contraptions. They are apparatuses. Uh, but uh, he sent me a video link today to three videos of something he's testing, and he referred to his own uh, apparatus as a contraption. Contraption is yeah. fine. Apparatus right. is fine. That right. thingy over there works too. That's right. And uh, But there are certain ones that our guess are apparatuses, and there are certain ones that I guess are contraptions. But... Uh, uh, I really like the, the 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 item that he's working on today uh, that he sent the videos of, and you might see that at the Cognitive Conclave. Uh, for those that are interested, you can find the class announcements. If you go to firstpersonsafety.com and go up under upcoming events, there's a link to it there. If you go to my social media, Eric and John's social media, there are links to it there. There's a picture of this guy, a QR code that we're all kind of circulating. So you can just scan the QR code. Uh, for you on an iPhone, if you save it to your photos and then press and hold on the QR code, it will go to the web page. I don't know how to do it on a heathen phone. Uh, I've gotten several several people. How do I do this if I'm looking at the image on my phone? I, I don't know. I don't know. I know how iPhones work. I don't know how the other ones do. So, uh, Eric, what else do you have? Up, anything else you want to say about the conclave? No, I, when I was kind of trying to do the description, I, I referred back to Pat Rogers, right? Learning occurs mm -hmm. after repetitive demoralizing failures. Right. We're not trying to demoralize anybody. We're not trying to make you fail. We're just, the hope on this is that we can all learn from it. We can all pick up ways to process. And if we can find ways to better teach the processing and get better performance on our side of things, it, it's only going to improve it for everyone. John, anything else on the conclave? No, it should be a good time. Uh, we're not going to give away all the, the state ways in which we're going to ensure you learn by demoralizing failure, but we've been thinking long and hard about them. Yes. Well, in my block, you're going to learn through dramatic success. So, because there's not a way to fail it. There's not. Cool. No, and, and I don't not, mean not. that, yeah. yeah, it's not like it's an ambush or anything uh, else. Right. Right. I took Justin Dial's technical force on force class uh, this summer and one of the reasons I went to a force on force class is because I wanted to be and test things in an environment which if I screwed up it wasn't that big of a deal yep. screwing up on the parking lot for real is a big deal yeah. and the hallmark of Justin's class was that he was you know, putting us in mental states that would force the natural reactions there or your responses uh, and to try to test you. And I, I found great, great benefit to that. That's, you know, what I kind of hope we're going to do here is we're going to force you to process this. It's not a class where you just stand in front of a target and see how fast you can punch holes in, in the target. It's a class where you're going to have to process information so that you don't get the blue screen of death when you're, you know, faced with an actual situation. Um, Eric, what else do you have coming up? 
Uh, so I'm editor over at AmericanCop.com. It's an online magazine, part of the firearms media group. So American handgunner guns shooting industry, right? I'm kind of the, the bastard stepchild over there because I'm all online. Uh, my company's Cougar Mountain Solutions. You can find it at Facebook, Instagram. Um, and if you add slash blog to the end of CougarMountainSolutions.com, you can find the website that we're feverishly trying to fix. Uh, got several classes on board at Gunsight, shotgun, pistol-mounted optics. Um, my company also does those as well as low-light applications and low-light instructor classes. So I'd love to travel, right? If I can find a host hauler, I will come to you. And you had an article this week on American Cop that shows the table of contents from the Morrison book that we yes. discussed earlier. So that, yeah, this week's article was just kind of a, a review on the book, The Modern Technique of the Pistol. And one of the photos in there was the table of contents, like we said, and kind of how it's laid out. Mindset, gun handling, marksmanship, um, and then kind of a catch-all section. But, you know, the book was written around the components of the combat triad. And, and the book is available on Amazon at substantially marked up prices. Yeah, so apparently what I found out back in November, last time I was down at Gunsight, the digital master copy of this has been lost. From between publishing house to publishing house, somehow it's been misplaced. The warehouse where the Ark is from Indiana Jones it might mm -hmm. be in the same one. Um, and until somebody like coughs up to have another digital master copy done, you're going to be stuck looking for stuff on the secondhand market. And that's sad because I would always tell folks who are getting ready to apprentice at Gunsight, go get a copy of that mm -hmm. and read it. Not because that's what we're teaching today in terms of specific techniques, but so you understand how things evolved and where we came from. Right. John, what you got coming up? I would have coming up. Uh, Class in Shreveport coming up almost full this month. Uh, I'm going to be in Florida um, in February, uh, two lecture days and a classroom. Uh, the only thing I have for sure is in the fall. Uh, for everybody that's complained, I never come to the Northeast. I'm coming to Culpeper, Virginia in September at Murphy's Place. This is your chance. I'm not going to ever come any closer. I can pretty much guarantee you. So, um, you know, September in uh, Virginia. Uh, and then October, I'm going to be back out in Oklahoma for probably who wins, who loses, and why, as well as the uh, the two-day version of Cognitive Pistol. When I started up my own training company, the, the two-day version of Cognitive Pistol was what I had in mind. I am immensely happy with the way that class has turned out. There's not much else like it out there. So come out for a unique training experience. You'll at least talk about it for a while. Oh, one, one thing to add, just that uh, Bulky, myself, and some others will be doing a Thunderstick Summit shot which is all shotgun centric in vegas in october more on that later all right uh i have a low light workshop coming up at red hill range it's just on a saturday evening i think we start at three and we get done at eight uh you know just doing some simple low light techniques and some playing with some of the magnificent steve's uh, maniacal toys from his maniacal workshop in the dark um Got the Cognitive Conclave coming up with these three gentlemen in, in, in April. And then I've got uh, May 20th, I have a trigger management class back at Red Hill. And there are only four slots left in that class as of right now. And I'm working to finalize uh, some other dates uh, that, are, that are coming up later around the South and the West. So keep a watch on my social media stuff and my web pages and you'll see those classes start to appear. 
All right, uh, Eric, any final thoughts? I think the triad has withstood the test of time relative to like when we've been doing mm -hmm. defensive firearms training. It, it's worth understanding and processing, maybe not the specific way it was taught originally, but at least understand how the evolution has been across the board. Um, and that it's not a gear thing or a tense of second thing as much as it is an acknowledgement and a process thing. That's John. John. Um, I would just kind of close out with what I touched on earlier. I think that um, that whole mindset comes down to the, pos the possession of a proper mental map for who you are in the world, not who you wish you were in the world or how you wish the world was. Um, that grounding reality uh, for the problems you're likely to face is probably the most important thing that you can accept and adopt and make a part of who you are. All right. Um, two episodes ago, I interviewed Mr. Ed Morales of the, the Miami, uh, FBI Miami gunfight. And that episode has shot to the number two ranking of all episodes. It has been tremendously well-received. Uh, the YouTube version of the episode tripled the normal numbers that we get on YouTube. Uh, I was amused that in one place I posted the link, someone responded with, I wonder how his version stacks up to Paul Harrell's analysis. And the irony was that person was probably serious. And I don't know if they were being serious. I don't know what their context of their, their question was, because maybe they were saying, I wonder if Paul Harrell got it right. It is an, and seen I don't call Harold's analysis and he did not get it just for the record. Okay. I have not watched it. I just, uh, uh, and I don't mean any, any disrespect to Mr. Harold. I, I don't, I just don't know what he said on, on the thing. Um, I don't know. We don't have any, any context for his stuff. Um, but I just was kind of amused when I first read it. I was like, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. Well, I think I'm going to go with Mr. Morellis's rendition of, the gunfight that he was involved in but i also recognize that the way the guy asked the question it could be read as i wonder oh, but it just that amused me um for those of you that are watching the show on youtube please subscribe to the youtube feed i think tonight we before we went on record we're like something like 929 subscribers on that i don't really care about getting huge quote numbers i would like to cross the thousand mark because it will allow me to turn on some features that you can't turn on uh, under a thousand but um, so i would ask that if you were watching the youtube please subscribe to the youtube channel um, the audio podcast version gets much higher numbers than youtube does and for the first time this week we went over uh, 800 plays as a 30-day average for all of the episodes and um, so I do appreciate the, the Morales episode. Anytime we have like what I call a big plateau buster, we tend to keep the audio, new audience that we get. And so the Morales episode brought in a whole bunch of new people and they have stayed around the um, uh, episode this past week. The numbers have been higher than our normal benchmark. So for those of you that have been here since the outset, thank you. For those of you that have joined us along the way, Thank you. Uh, I continue to be humbled by um, the reception 
that the show gets. And that is much more important to me than the numbers. Uh, I dearly love uh, hearing from the audience and they talk about the actual content of the show because that's what we're trying to do here. And I say we, because it's not just me, it's John, it's Eric, it's all the other people that that uh, come on and play along. There's a lot of people behind the scenes that help set up episodes mm-hmm. by making contacts with people. Uh, Freddie Polish, my gosh, I had he was my booking agent there for a while, uh, getting people. Uh, Dave Spalding's helped get episodes. Uh, several other people you guys have helped. Uh, people that have not been on the show as guests, but have helped set up episodes or they help research things. And I just continue to be humbled by the response and the reception uh, to the show and what we're trying to do with this. And um, thank you. Uh, I, can't, I, just, I can't thank you enough. So all I can say is, is thanks. And uh, I know that your most important asset is your time. And thank you to choose to spend that with us.